0: Imagine for a moment, you're sleeping peacefully in your bed, having a wonderful dream, when suddenly you're awakened by the scream of your smoke detector. You wake up and you realize that in fact smoke is billowing from under your door. You reach out to touch it as you were taught in your high school safety classes. And the door is burning hot. You know you're not supposed to open it. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? How are you going to get away? Do your children know what to do? For years, I have been informed that you really need to have a fire escape plan. You need to have gone over it with your family, and you need to have practiced it. And I guess in some ways, I've given general thought to that. I think perhaps once, I've told my children what, what they might need to do in case we ever had a fire like that. But in all honesty, it's one of those things that I continually put off and never really have dealt with. And so what do you suppose will happen to the Crozier family, if that's us? Imagine there'll be a lot of panic. We might get out, we might not. But I want you to think about another scenario that's very similar. Another scenario to which we need to give a great deal more thought. And yet sometimes have only given as much thought as my family has to fire escape. In First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, the scripture reads, "...no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man." God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptations come, but the Scripture encourages us by pointing out that God provides a way of escape. This passage provides me a great deal of hope because I remember that the same person who wrote these words also wrote what we find in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7 and Verse 15, he says, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then in Romans 7:16, he continues. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And it amazes me that the same person who talked about his own sin as if it had complete control over him and he couldn't get away from it, is the one who said, God provides the way of escape from every sin. And while recognizing the struggle that he had, he provides this encouragement that we can escape, we can get away. But just as with a house fire, we must not think that we'll come into that moment of overwhelming temptation and all of a sudden a neon sign will appear that says, this is the way to go. It's going to take preparation. It's going to take planning. And so this morning, I'd like for us to discuss God's escape route. There are ten things, ten steps that we're going to move through very quickly. But I hope these are things that will help us avoid, sometimes, and overcome, other times, temptation. Before we look at this, would you bow with me, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise your name because you are awesome and powerful. You are the great God, sovereign Lord and ruler of the universe. And we know that you know how to preserve your godly through trials and temptations. And we pray that you would preserve us, deliver us from evil, lead us not into temptation, but help us, Father, to escape the traps of the tempter. Help us to overcome the snares of Satan. Help us to avoid the devices of the devil. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to glorify and honor you and pursue righteousness in all our lives so we might lift you up and praise your name, overcoming the devil, being released from his traps and his bondage. Father, thank You for loving us and sending Your Son to die for us. Thank You for the forgiveness offered to Him and for the direction offered by Your Spirit through the Word. Help us to study and understand and be enlightened so that we might know how to serve You and our faith might be increased that we might glorify You. Thank You so much, Father, for loving us. We love You. Through Your Son's name we pray. Amen. As I said, we've got ten of these, and so I'm going to be moving very quickly. If you'd like to study them more, there will be outlines on the table in the foyer on your way out. It'll also be on the Internet on our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com probably before the day is over, if I can remember to email it to Mark this afternoon. Mark does a great job with that. But we're going to be moving very quickly as we take a look at these steps, but I hope it's beneficial to you. Step number one, you need to rely on God. The passage we just read moments ago in Romans chapter 7 demonstrated a time in Paul's life that he's describing where he relied on himself. If you notice, reading through that text over and over again, it's I, 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 me, me, me. He's relying on himself in this text. And what it demonstrates is that Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, according to the law, blameless, if he's saying this is the kind of trouble he has with sin when he's relying on himself, what do we think is going to happen to us? Paul concludes this discussion of despair by saying in verse 24 of Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is pointing out that by relying on Jesus Christ, he can overcome. Paul points out that we need to remember what we've done to ourselves while we've been in the world, and sometimes even as we pursued sin while we've been Christians. In Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1 it says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. This is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul says there, "...and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." This is what we've done to ourselves in sin. And it's caused sin to take over. And if we're going to just try to rely on ourselves, this is the path we're going to follow. We've got to rely on God. And relying on God, of course, means doing His will. Instead of following my own path, I get in His Word and follow His path. Paul points out in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 9, Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In Philippians 4.13, He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me when I rely on God, when I rely on Christ and their Word and submit to it wholly, that is when I can find the escape route. Which leads to our second step. We need to increase our knowledge. We've all heard Hosea 4 and verse 6 over and over again. My people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. People fall to temptation over and over again because of a lack of knowledge. Think about it. In our illustration of the fire, we've got to know some things if we want to escape. We've got to know that smoke rises and so we need to be crawling on the floor. We've got to know that if the door is hot, don't open it because there's a flame on the other side that will come right in if you do. We've got to know how to get out of the house. at every point. We've got to have some knowledge if we want to escape that fire. The reality is, if we want to escape the fire of sin, we've got to have some knowledge. We've got to know some things. We've got to know what sin is. We've got to know God's Word. Psalm 119 and verse 11 says, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have learned and studied and know your Word so that I can know what sin, sin is and so that I can know how to avoid it. If we want to escape, we have to have Knowledge. We've got to be increasing in our knowledge, and of course, we've read over and over again, and we don't need to lose sight of this. We've got to remember Jesus Himself was tempted, and how did He overcome? In Matthew chapter four, three times He said, "It is written." It is written, and because it is written, this is how I'm going to act. There's just no question about it. I'm not going to fight it, and you can do what God says because it is written. If we want to have the escape route, we've got to have some knowledge. That means we've got to be spending every day trying to learn more about how to overcome sin, about how to glorify God by being in His Word. Step number three. We need to work on the heart. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says, Guard the heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. In Mark chapter 7, Mark, chapter 7, and verse 20 through 23. In Mark, chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, Jesus said, "...what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile the person." What Jesus is pointing out is that the heart is where sin begins. And so if we're going to deal with our sins, we've got to work on our heart. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus demonstrated the great problem with the Pharisees, one of the great problems with the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, this time in verse 25, Woe to you. This is Matthew 23:25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! "'For you are like whitewashed tombs, "'which outwardly appear beautiful, "'but within are full of dead people's bones "'and all uncleanness. "'So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, "'but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness.'" Jesus is pointing out the problem is the Pharisees worked on the outside, but not on the inside. They wanted the actions to look pure, but they weren't worried about the heart, and of course that caused a problem. Sooner or later, excuse me, sooner or later, what's in the heart comes out and is demonstrated. So we need to start with the heart. Oftentimes we make this point and we turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and verse 8, where Paul there says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Meditate on these things. Dwell on these things. Focus on these things. And we need to make this point. Because what goes into our heart is what's going to come out of our heart. What we dwell on in our heart is what's going to come out of our heart. And so when we start talking about focusing on the heart, we need to think about what we're thinking about. What's coming in there? What's dwelling in our mind? What's inhabiting our mind and our heart? And we need to clean that up. And that will help us with a lot of things. But I'd like for us to take this concept of working on the heart a step further. Many times, even though we're not hypocrites like the Pharisees were, I think for me personally, sometimes I've taken the same approach to sin that they have. And that is, I'm, I'm merely working on that outer action. Whatever it is, that the, the acting that I'm doing that I'm convinced is sin, and I start setting up rules and guidelines that will cause me to turn away from that. But instead, of realizing that oftentimes, the, the action that we're committing, drinking alcohol, taking the drugs, lusting... Uh, pornography, immorality, outbursts of wrath, gossip and slander. Oftentimes, the problem are not those things. They're just the symptom. Let me give you an illustration. Sometime last year, I walked out of the back door of my house, and I looked down, and I happened to notice that a piece of siding underneath that door had popped away. And I realized, of course, that meant the wood behind there is rotten, and I said to myself, I made a mental note, okay, sometime we have to fix that. And a couple of weeks ago, I had our good brother, Kenny Wells, come over and have him take a look at it. And he said, oh, yeah, we can fix that. That won't be any bit of a problem. Fortunately for me, however, Kenny is a lot wiser than I am. If I were the one who were going to fix that, I'd have popped that piece of siding off, removed that piece of wood, put a new piece of wood in there, put that siding back on, and I'd have been done. Kenny understands how these things work, however, and he said, you know what? I better check. There's a problem here somewhere that's causing this, and I need to find that. And so he popped off from siding beside the door, and guess what? It was rotten beside the door, too. And so he popped it off beside the window, and guess what? It was rotten beside the window, and he popped it off above the window, and it was rotten above the window, and he popped it off on the overhang, and it was rotten on the overhang. Halfway up our house on the overhang, somebody had done something incorrectly or something, and it busted, and it had been leaking who knows how long, all the way down the overhang, down the side of our house, down to the bottom of the door. Now, I would have removed that one piece of siding, replaced that piece of wood, put the new thing on, and it would have looked fine. It would have looked good on the outside, but that leak would have still been rotting out the wood all the way along. Now, Kenny has fixed the problem as well as the appearance. So I don't have to worry about it happening again. But what would have happened eventually if all we had done is taken that one piece off, replaced that wood, and slapped it back together? It may have taken several years, but eventually it would have just happened again, wouldn't it? Because the problem hadn't been fixed. And that all too often is what's going on in our lives. We're so focused on getting rid of this action that we're doing that we're not getting back into the heart and thinking what's causing it. Maybe our problem is we've got some bitterness and resentment in our hearts. Maybe some selfishness. Maybe it is some hypocrisy. Maybe it's a a judgmental attitude. Maybe it's we've never been able to learn how to deal with our emotions and our sorrow and our distress and the stress that's happening in our lives. Maybe we've never figured out how to approach people that are hurting us. But those are the problems that are going on, and these actions are usually just the symptom. If we want to escape the sin and the temptation, it's not just about rules and regulations of outward conduct. We've got to figure out what's going on inside the heart that's leading to that and deal with it at the root level. Work on the heart. Fourth, don't provide for fleshly lust. Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, Paul makes this very clear. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, he says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We need to understand that providing for the lust of the flesh is not exactly the same as acting on the lust of the flesh. I understand that going to a water park or going to the beach where there's all these kids I'll get it down here in a minute, scantily clad women is not the same as lusting after them. But guys, what do I think I'm going to do if I go there? I'm making provision for the lust. The idea of making provision is like when you go on a trip. You're packing your bags. What have I got to take along with me to go on this trip? If I want to do these things on this trip, if I want to go skiing on this trip, I don't just hop in the car and go. I've got to pack the proper equipment. I've got to take skis. And, and poles and, and whatever that suit is called. Or i got to take the money to be able to rent it when I get there, don't I? I've got to make provision for it. If I want to go hiking, I can't just hop in the car and go. i got to make sure that I've got the proper clothing that I'm going to wear and the proper shoes and, and, and water and various things. I'm making provision for that. See, what we've got to learn to do is not make provision. Don't pack the bags that leave us in. Don't pack our cars and our luggage with the things that are going to lead us to sin. This is not a question of, well, do you have a verse that says it's wrong to do this? This is an issue of, if this is going to lead me to sin, I need to stop way back here and cut it off at the knees. Don't make provision for the lust of the flesh. Now, one of the things that we need to understand about that is that for different ones of us, that's going to mean different things. In Matthew 5.29, Jesus said, if your eyes are causing you to stumble, pluck them out if your eyes are causing you... He didn't tell every Christian everywhere to fuck out his eyes. He said, if your eyes are causing you to stumble, fuck them out. There are going to be things that may cause you to stumble that don't cause me to stumble. And so I can't establish rules that everything that causes me to stumble means you can't do it. We've got to be careful with that. But we all have to be honest about where we are. I'll give you an illustration. For me, by the grace of God, alcohol has never been a problem for me. And so if my car broke down and the nearest phone was inside a liquor store, it would not cause me a bit of problem, temptation-wise, to walk in there, use their phone to call somebody to come and get me. Now, I probably wouldn't want to because of influence issues, and I understand all that, but, but in that scenario, if that's what I needed to do to get some help, it wouldn't cause me a bit of problem. It wouldn't tempt me, but if you struggle with alcohol, you'd be a fool to do that. On the other hand, there are television shows that I know caused me problems with lust, and I just had to learn I can't watch those shows. Now, I can't establish a rule and say that you can't watch CSI Miami, but I've got to tell you right now, I can't watch CSI Miami. So if you're ever having me over to your house, don't say, hey, do you want to watch CSI Miami? Because I can't do it. See, that's the point. Don't provide for the lust of the flesh. If you know that it's packing the bags to lead you to sin, you need to stop right there. If you've ever studied or had any involvement in the anonymous groups, like Gambler's Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, they'll talk about things like triggers and rituals. Triggers are those things that might trigger the response, trigger the acting out that the person is committing. For instance, the idea of trigger. I know of one brother who is a recovering alcoholic who has ceased to drink caffeine. Not because he thinks caffeine is the same as alcohol, but because he understood that after about four or five cups of caffeinated coffee every morning, he was agitated inside whether he realized it or not, and one of his triggers is that kind of agitation and stress. He feels like that's when he needs to take a drink of alcohol in order to calm down. So he went, that's a trigger. I can't do that. Now, he's not going to go make a rule for everybody, don't drink caffeinated coffee. But he understands that's a trigger for him. He has to stop, cut it off at the knees. Rituals. A lot of times when we end up acting out, committing this actual sin, if we looked at it, we realized we went through a whole process that led up to it. For instance, I have known several couples that are merely dating who have been involved in sexual immorality, and the story is almost always the same. They went through a ritual. They wanted privacy, so they drove out to some secluded place. Now, they had no intent of going out there and committing immorality. In fact, they may have started their date with a prayer that God would keep them pure. But they drove out to a secluded place. Or maybe they wanted to get away from the roommates. And so they walked into the room and closed the door because they wanted privacy. After all, all couples need privacy, right? We need privacy. We need to get to know each other. But then they ended up going in there and committing a That same ritual happened every time. You know how they could have stopped it? Instead of trying to go into the room and act like we're not going to do this, let's realize there's a ritual we're going through that's paving the way here. Instead of going off to a secluded place for privacy, we'll learn to have privacy in public. We'll go to a restaurant where everybody's talking but nobody else can hear us. We'll go out on the front porch at our parents' house where we know we can't do anything, but we still have some privacy and we can talk. We'll take walks in the park where people can see us, but we still have some privacy. You see, cutting it off at the knees. Getting rid of those rituals. Don't provide for the fleshly lusts. And when we do that, we'll actually end up avoiding a lot of the temptations. Number five. Pursue righteousness. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. Paul is advising Timothy as a young evangelist. He says, "...but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness." And then he repeated again in Second Timothy chapter two and verse 22, where he said, "So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It's not enough just to flee something that's wrong. We need to replace it by pursuing something that's right. I don't know about you, but I know for me personally, that as I deal with the sin, what I often go through this kind of progress, where there's a period where I'm focused on the sin. And then when I'm convicted about it, I'm focused on avoiding the sin. But the problem is, when I'm focused on avoiding the sin, what's filling my mind is still thinking about the sin. What we then need to do is progress to where we're thinking about something else and pursuing something else. Remember the story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 12 about the unclean spirit being cast out and it wandered in waste and desert places and then it came back and it found the person clean and slept up and so it brought seven more spirits and it took over with a vengeance. Jesus there was not merely talking about how it worked with unclean spirits. He was really talking about temptation. He was using this illustration of casting out the unclean spirits to talk about what happens with sin. And the reality is that when we try to remove the sin if all we do is just try to remove it and we don't feel something else there all we're doing is focusing on keeping them out The problem is we're still focused on that sin. We've got to replace it with something else. This is really illustrated in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, Paul said, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. His point was, the more you put that wine in your body, the less you have control. But instead of just avoiding the wine, you need to pursue the Spirit. Fill your heart and mind with the things of the Spirit, and that will provide control. So we need to pursue righteousness. We need to have humility. First Corinthians chapter 10. Our text that we're basing this on is verse 13. If we back up a verse into verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This reminds me of Proverbs 16:18 and other proverbs that essentially say pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Again, I know for me personally, the one of the the times that I fall the most is right after I've talked to somebody else and said, oh yeah, I've got that beat. Oh yeah, I've I've won that battle. I'm good on that one. And it's almost as if Satan was just sitting in the background waiting for that pride to be there so that he could walk up and, and kick my feet out from under me. We've got to have Humility. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, it's how He started it, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we see that poverty of spirit in two ways. Number one, by realizing how sinful we've been. And because of that, we realize we can't save ourselves and we have to turn to Jesus and get His mercy and His grace so that we can be saved. But secondly, that humility, that poverty of spirit is the recognition that I can't win this battle on my own. I can only win it if Jesus is fighting with me. And so I have to turn to Him. Remember, if we start having pride and arrogance, we've gone back up and violated step number one. It said rely on God. It's the humility, the recognition that God can work through me when I recognize my weakness. As long as I'm trying to talk about how strong I am, I'm going to end up falling. But once I realize my weakness and rely on God in humility, that's when I can have real strength. It's going to take humility to overcome sin. There's a second thing I think we can learn from First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, and that is we need to use the strong moments to prepare for the weak. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed. In those moments when we are standing, in those moments when we have been doing well, maybe we've gone a couple days without lying and cheating and stealing. Maybe we've gone a few weeks without gossiping and slandering. Maybe we've gone a little while without falling into our sin. And we begin to think we're standing. And we're committed. At that moment, we're ready to do everything. We need to realize that we don't always feel like that. We won't always feel like that. Everybody has ups and downs. There are days when we're really into the battle against sin and we're going to do anything and everything it takes to overcome. But then there are days when, I just don't feel like fighting this battle today. And so what we need to do is we need to take the strong moments and use them to prepare for the weak. The fact is... In the moments when I'm weak and not really feeling like fighting sin, I'm not strong enough to call somebody and say, hey, will you take care of me? So what I need to do is in those strong moments, I need to set up relationships and encourage people, you know, here are the times that you need to call me. Here are the times when I'm likely to commit this sin and there are going to be days when I'm not interested in fighting the battle and I need you to call me on those days, at those times. Perhaps you've gotten into a bad habit of sitting around the lunch table with some of your friends at work and doing a lot of gossiping and slandering. And today you're really convicted that I'm going to quit doing that, I'm not going to do that again. What well, you need to take today as the strong moment. Get together with a brother or sister in Christ and say, here's what I need you to do. I take lunch at 12 o'clock, I need you to call me at 11.55. Or I need you to call me at 12.15. I need you to call me and just check in with me and just ask, how are you doing on the gossip? How are you doing on the slang? I-, I need to take the strong moments. If you have trouble with internet pornography or internet gambling, you need to take the strong moments... Be the moment where you install the filters on your computers it will keep you from going to those places because in the weak moments, you won't say, all right, I know what I need to do. I need to go put a filter on there. Use the strong moments to prepare for the weak ones. And this leads us to the next two points. Confess to and pray with your shepherds. In James, chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, there's an interesting passage. It's a difficult passage. And I realize that not everybody agrees with me on my interpretation of this passage. But it says, "...Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven." Now, I believe that passage is not talking about physical sickness, and it's not talking about a physical remedy to physical sickness. I think he's talking about a spiritual sickness, a spiritual weakness. If you're struggling with weakness, if you're struggling with sin, what it says is go to the elders, confess to them, pray with them. They can provide the medication that we need. They can provide the guidance and the direction as the physician does when we're sick. And listen, I know I've preached that for years, and... And I'm the, the, the greatest perpetrator against that. For the long time, I would preach on it, mostly to try to convince myself to do it. And all the while, that sin inside is just festering up like a pus filled boil. And I'll be honest with you, when I finally broke down and confessed to them, it was painful. It was like taking a lance and jabbing it into an infected sore, and it hurt. But the relief and the help and the guidance afterwards was amazing. Phenomenal. So often today, we are not using the greatest tool God has given us to help us overcome our struggles and our weaknesses and our doubts and our sins. And that's the shepherds He's given us. We hope that the shepherds will pay attention and be able to figure out everybody who's going through problems and they'll approach them. But this passage says we need to go to them. Don't wait for them to come to us. Yes, our shepherds need to be paying attention. Yes, they ought to be able to see those things and they work it back. But this passage says we need to go to them. And I can guarantee you, I don't know, if you're a guest here, I don't know what the shepherds are like at your congregation, but I know what they're like here. If you want help, go to them. They're not going to stand in condescending judgment. They'll respect you for being honest with them, and they'll help you. Go to them. But there's a second part of this passage, and that's in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Confess to your brethren. Now, this doesn't mean that every Sunday we all have to walk to the front and air our dirty laundry going forward. That's not what it's talking about. But it is talking about the fact that we need to have relationships within the body where we're confessing to one another and helping one another and sharing with one another what we're struggling with and what's helping us, what hurts us, what we need strength with, where we need people to lift us up. We need to be having those relationships. And I'll just be frank with you. It needs to be somebody other than just your spouse. Because the reality is, in our marriages, far too often, we, we hope that the problem's not really there. And so it's very easy for us to push it under the rug. But in those relationships with our brethren, we can be honest and objective and help each other. And this is what this passage is saying. We need to go to one another and do confessing to one another. Do you have a relationship like that? If somebody came up to you and said, who is it that you're talking to about that? Could you give a name or two names? We need to have those kind of relationships. So that when we're struggling, we have somebody to call. We have somebody who'll pray with us. The prayer itself, James says, will be helpful. Because now we've got more people enlisting God's aid. But secondly, it develops relationships that can fulfill what Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 says we need to be doing. And that is stirring one another up to love and good deeds. Stirring one another up. That's, those are the relationships we need. And finally, I think if we've done these nine things, there's going to be a whole lot of the temptations that we've struggled with that we're actually avoiding. When we do these things, there's going to be a whole host and tassel of things that have been causing us problems that we're not ever even going to be near anymore. But we're naive to believe that we'll never face temptation again. There is no set of steps or rules that we can follow that says I'll never be tempted again. Temptation is part of life because Satan is in our world. And those of us who are working hard to overcome temptation, he's going to work all the more hard to make us fall. And so there's one more thing that we need to do. We've done all these nine steps, but now we're face-to-face with temptation anyway. Flee immediately. Don't think about it. Don't flirt with it. Don't wonder about it. Don't fantasize over it. Don't think I can get just a little bit closer to it and I'll still be okay. Flee immediately. Those passages we read from 1 Timothy 6.11 and 2 Timothy 2.22 where Paul had told Timothy what to pursue, did you remember that both of them started with flee these things, flee youthful lusts. Flee these things, he said. Flee the fleshly passions. Genesis 39 and verse 12 is the illustration we always use. Joseph, when Potiphar's wife came into him while he was doing his work and said, lie with me. She grabbed his coat. What did he do? Did he sit there and say, Oh, I can't run. She's got a hold of my coat. If I, if I, if, you know, if I run, she'll have my coat and she might be able to frame me. Did he say, Oh, I can't run because she'll get mad at me? Did he sit back and say, Oh, you know, she really is good looking. I guess it wouldn't hurt to just stand here for a little while and think about it. No, without thought to consequences, he fled. And it did pave the way for him to be cast into jail. And sometimes fleeing, our sins might cause some consequences that we didn't really want to deal with. But I'll tell you what. Those consequences will always be better than the consequences of submitting to the sin. Always. Always. Flee immediately. You're going to a party and you get there and you find out that they've got alcohol there and that's one of your struggles and so you say, that's it, I'm out of here. I'm not going to be a part of that. I turn around and leave. That may cause your boss to be mad at you. Or you're walking through Walmart and you've had some struggle with stealing. And all of a sudden you see something that you know you don't have the money for and you've got the urge, just pick it up and put it in your pocket. You know what? Just put everything down and walk out of the store. Put everything down in the basket and walk out of the store. Not put it down in your pocket. Leave. Leave. Get away. Don't flirt with it. Don't snuggle up to it. Don't think about it. Get away. I have no doubt if we thought through this thoroughly or if I were able to talk to you about some things that helped you, we could probably add some steps to this. But I hope this is at least a beginning point for all of us to think. You know, the fact is, if a fire happened in my house tonight, we'd be in trouble. Sadly, for many Christians, if temptation happened this afternoon, they'd be in trouble. We've got to work on this. This is a good starting place. I hope it helps you in your fight to overcome the fire of sin and temptation. Let's remember I want to end with a point about hope here. Sometimes as we take a look at temptation and we look at how, how bad it is all around us, sometimes we can feel overwhelmed and think that just, there's just no way to fight the fight. Why even keep trying? But I want you to remember what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Or your translation may say from temptations. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly from temptations and trials. When we take His route, when we follow Him, it'll be a growth process, but we'll escape. And we'll escape whole and saved by the grace of God. Let's help each other do that.